Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I'll be your host for this episode. A big thank you to all the listeners of the podcast and to all the followers on Facebook. We are approaching 1,000 downloads and 1,000 followers, something I didn't think was possible until month two, and we've managed it in three weeks, so thank you again. If you would like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page and join those 1,000 followers. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. And if you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps and ensures I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout out in a future podcast and a thank you message from the host. And for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. And without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. And this is going to be part one of a two-part episode. Uh, I teased this episode, I think, a couple episodes ago. I was working on this one and realized it was going to be too big and better to cover in two episodes. So this is going to be episode one with episode two coming uh, hopefully tomorrow. Sit back and enjoy some true blue crime. The black widow spider is named after its practice of killing and consuming its mating partner. In the mid-90s, the media adopted the arachnid's nickname assigned and assigned it to a female serial killer named Judy Bonano. She was arrested, tried, and eventually executed for killing two of her husbands. She was also suspected of poisoning and drowning her son, murdering a boyfriend, and trying to kill a third husband by blowing up his car. Her motive was money, mainly in the form of life insurance payouts. While the spider version of the Black Widow limits its antagonist to females, in humans there are no gender limitations. There are also no limitations to the ingenuity the killers will use to murder the ones they are, loved, they are supposed to love and protect. A simple hike in the mountains can result in a terrible fall, and if you plan it right, it can be your second or third chance to kill your wife. But eventually people will start to ask questions and look closer, and when that happens, you might get to share a nickname of a Black Widow killer. Online dating has its pros and cons. For busy professionals, single parents, or even people who aren't that social, online dating provides an opportunity to meet other, hopefully, single people who are also too busy for the standard dating scene. Online dating in the 90s meant you could avoid disgusting smoke-filled bars while you search, meet, and develop relationships in the virtual world before taking a chance with the person in the real world. For some, it was a nightmare labyrinth of bad dates and being catfished, but for many others, they found and continue to find true love and happiness. When Tony Bertolet signed up for a Christian dating site in 1999, she already had a lot going for her in her life. She was a prominent and wealthy eye surgeon from a family who had made a lot of money in the oil industry. She was recently divorced, and at 37 years old, she was hoping for a family to share in the spoils of her hard work. Harold Henthorne also joined the dating site. Just four years earlier, he had become a widow, losing his wife to a tragic car accident. Not one where someone lost control in the vehicle sustained massive damage. Her death was the result of their car slipping off its jack while she was underneath, assisting with a tire change on the side of a remote roadway. But we'll cover that later. 
Back to 1999, Tony fell hard for the smooth-talking and charming Harold. He was 41 years old and talked the good talk when it came to all the success he'd had in the fundraising and charity organization world. Tony's family initially liked the good-looking and charismatic man Tony had fallen for and knew that their quick engagement and quick marriage was a result of the plans to start a family as soon as possible. This made sense given their slightly advanced age at the time they met. The couple married in September of 2000 and soon after moved to Colorado. Tony's family would notice this as the first red flag. She had spent a lot of time, money, and energy building a successful eye surgeon practice in Mississippi and loved being close to her family. The move was out of character for her, but she told everyone she started wanted to start a family in Colorado with Harold. This was also the first sign that life with Harold would be all about Harold. When family asked about the new couple coming back to Mississippi to visit, Harold told them he didn't want to make the flight, but they were more than welcome to come visit them in Colorado. Tony's parents at the time were close to 70 years old and in less than ideal health, both having strokes a few years after their daughter's marriage. Tony and Harold would complete their family unit in 2005 when they welcomed the birth of their daughter, Haley. By all outward appearances, the Henthorns were living their best life. They had a nice house with mountain views, two stable and successful careers, and a beautiful baby girl. But things are not always as they seem. Tony's family noticed a change in Harold after the move to Colorado. His personality that had first come across as charming and proud back in 2000 had now become obnoxious and controlling. He seemed to control every aspect of Tony's life and would require her to put the phone on speakerphone whenever she talked to close friends and family. The control over Tony was only the beginning. Once Haley was born, he took his position of power to an entirely different level with his daughter. She became his puppet and he pulled her strings. Every minute of her day was planned out by Harold. He set up Harold-approved playdates, ate Harold-approved food, and told Tony that the hour before Haley fell asleep was Daddy and Haley time every single night. A baby monitor stayed in her room day and night for years after she was an infant. Tony, on the other hand, had no control or decision-making power in the relationship. Harold made all the decisions, especially ones that benefited him. If she needed something for the house, Harold would argue with her for hours until she'd just give up. But if Harold wanted to make a big purchase, there was no discussion. He just did it. Even her business associates noted, noticed Tony seemed hapless to make decisions in her life, always needing to clear things with Harold first before she could agree to anything. On the financial side of things, Harold continued to claim he was the president of a fundraising company for a nonprofit and had staff working for him and he was making a lot of money. But when Tony talked to her parents, they were shocked to learn the couple was struggling financially. Her parents gave them money to the tune of half a million dollars in funds to cover various expenses related to the house and living. But while power issues and money issues can happen in relationships and marriages, and while it can be unhealthy, there's nothing illegal about it. Tony's friends and families just had to find a way to live with the new Tony, and any talk of a divorce was a moot point. Tony didn't want to be divorced for a second time, and she wanted to keep the family unit intact. So before we get to the actual true crime side of this, we'll discuss kind of the the story leading up to this event that's going to happen in 2012. So uh, when I write the actual story part of it, 
there's a lot that I want to expand on, but it's difficult to keep it within the flow. So it's easier to kind of present it in narrative form and then break down some of the different parts of it. As we go through here, nothing up until their marriage really seemed out of place at least from what they knew at the time. So Tony's on this dating site in 1999. She's just recently divorced. I couldn't find out much about her marriage or why it failed. It just, everywhere I read was just that he, she was recently divorced and she's 37 years old and she wants to start a family. So the the quick engagement, quick marriage worked for her because as we know, the older both the male and female get, it's harder for them to have a healthy pregnancy and, and a healthy child and everything like that. So it's not like they can date for four or five years, which would put them would put Tony into her early forties and then decide to get engaged, have a long engagement, have a marriage, you know, she'd be mid forties before she's having Haley. So even the quick engagement, the quick wedding doesn't really ring a lot of alarm bells and Harold didn't appear to have issues uh, producing money for anything at this point so as far as everybody knew he's the successful fundraiser for nonprofits. with this company he's got business cards so just from from the very first look at at harold and tony's relationship it just looks like they've got it all they've got that american dream going on and you know with obviously some baggage in their past uh Harold's got this wife who passed away in 1995 from this this accident, and that's going to be covered more in part two. But and Tony's divorced, and that happens, so they're coming together kind of both in their second relationships, and they both want a family, they both want children, although they're, you know, Tony's, or Harold's 41, Tony's 37, so get married quick, and instead of doing things at 27 and 31, they're doing it at 37 and 41. So they just have to move a little bit faster. And what what we see happen is what happens a lot in these control relationships is Harold finds Tony and by all accounts, she's quite the catch. I mean, she's 37 years old. She's good looking. She comes from an incredibly wealthy family. And we I covered it real quick in the narrative, but her father had worked, I believed, in the petroleum industry, but either as part of that or on the side, he had all these oil claims. And basically, wherever oil was being pumped in, I think it was a lot of it was in Louisiana, he was making money off of it. And I looked even the other day, the, the company that that Tony's father, even though he's now passed away, but the company that Tony's father set up, or however you want to say it, operates these these oil pumps. Most of them were shut down, but I want to say some of them were still operational, and they were producing something like, I think it was like a 1,000 barrels a month or something, which doesn't sound like a lot, but at crude oil prices of, I think, even at $67 a barrel, which is pretty low right now, that's still $67,000 a month in income. Now there's op operating costs and obviously you have to pay guys to run the pumps or to, to maintain them or whatever. And the, the cost of the, of the 
power to do it and everything, but still, that's just one site, and at one point he had 20 or 30, I think, of these sites operational, so the family made a, a good amount of money. So Tony comes from a family that is quite wealthy. She's a successful eye surgeon, and everybody talked about when she was you know, in high school, she's this incredibly brilliant person. Everybody, everybody would say how she's the smartest person in any room that she walked into and very outgoing, very charismatic, gets along with everyone. And so again, Harold meets this woman in online dating on a Christian dating site. It's everything that he's looking for and and everything that most men would be looking for that are looking for a woman with these qualities, you know, he's hit the gold mine. He's at the jackpot with, with this woman. And from outward appearances, he's this 41 year old widow with no kids that has a successful business himself. And so he's bringing in a lot of, you know, money to the, to the situation. And not that money solves everything and, and people without money can, be even more in love and even more happy in life than people without but it just makes life easier especially if you're going to be starting a family at an advanced age there's oftentimes medical costs that are going to make make that a very expensive venture so to have the money to not have to stress about financial burdens starting a family doing this move so it's going to put them on a path of having less stress down the beginning part of their marriage and trying to start a family than most couples are going to come into. As we're going to see with with Harold, this is going to be all about control. So he's going to find Tony and it's going to be very hard for him to control Tony when she's around her family. There's going to be people who are going to start to see some of the cracks exposed even from the distance from Mississippi to Colorado, that if that distance wasn't so great, then these people are going to have, have access to Tony. So Harold's going to remove her from Mississippi and move her out to Colorado, where he now has full control of the relationship. And he's going to make all those decisions. Tony's not going to have many people, friends or family close by to confide in. So her only confidant is is Harold, who's the person that is controlling her. And even if her family's trying to talk with her on the phone, he had the house phone routed to his cell phone. So she couldn't make calls or receive calls on the personal level because everything was going through Harold what they first looked at as oh you know it's that's a cute thing like he's taking charge of the relationship and you know he's he's this go-getter type guy and he's very outgoing and has all these stories and all this kind of stuff has now turned into this guy's controlling every aspect of her life he's you know what, what we thought was him coming across as being kind of bold and and strong is really coming across now as either braggadocious or overbearing. And so they're seeing all this stuff, but they can't do much about it other than drive or fly from Mississippi to Colorado in order to see their daughter and 
and or sister and granddaughter niece you know the family's got to make a, a major effort to go visit her and even it said when she when family would visit Harold was always around and they're going to begin to question some of the financial stuff because although he claims to have be working this job and have all these the staff and 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 all this stuff going on in his life whenever the family's around he can take time off and he's not really working and and he's he's there every second of every day next to her so again what some people will look at in the beginning as saying oh he's really a dedicated and devoted husband and father and that kind of stuff they start to realize that this guy is is just a helicopter husband helicopter father and to to the point that nobody has control of anything going on in that house other than Harold this is what's going to go on from the time basically they move out to Colorado in 2000 until this incident sets up in 2012 so again it's not happening overnight when we talk about these cases a lot of the times it I don't want to say it sounds worse than it is because it, it it's terrible what's going on here but we see certain things and look at it and just say how can how can you live that way well in reality this is over the course of 12 years so little stuff is going to build up things probably it mentioned in times or times that the couple was very distant and maybe on the verge of a separation or something like that but then something would happen and they'd make amends and then things were great again so it's it's we're looking at 12 years in a snapshot but at the same time we're kind of given the overall this is what's going on here harold's got these extreme control issues it starts with tony from 2000 to 2005 then it shifts over to tony still being controlled but harold has this little puppet now and, and Haley that he can control even more um, she's not leaving for work each day and and apparently you know harold's not working much either at this point so he just has full control over these two women his wife and his daughter and he's making all the decisions and this is this is what he wants it's he just absolutely needs that control so we'll get back to the story here in september of 2012 harold was beaming about a 12th wedding anniversary in September of 2012, Harold was beaming about a 12th wedding anniversary trip he had planned for the two of them. He wanted to, wanted it to be a surprise and had Tony's business manager keep her schedule clear. He planned every minute of the trip out for them and even recorded her reaction on video when he told her. For some people, this would be a dream come true. After working hard all summer, your partner plans out the perfect romantic getaway for just the two of you to celebrate your 12th wedding anniversary. Some spouses just hope for a card and maybe a small gift, but that wasn't Harold's style. A romantic hiking trip in the mountains of Colorado sounds amazing to a lot of people, myself included, but it did have Tony's friends and family a little confused. Tony was not a huge lover of the outdoors. She enjoyed the scenery of the mountains, and like most, she probably enjoyed a nice drive through the mountains, but at 50 years old and with bad knees, a hiking trip was probably not her first choice of a romantic getaway. On September 29, 2012, the couple set, up to, set out to summit 
Deer Mountain. At 10,013 feet, it's not even close to some of the higher peaks in the area, but at almost two miles above sea level, it would still be a pretty tough hike over uneven terrain. Photos were taken along the hike showing an almost impossibly happy Harold and Tony with what appears to be a forced, tired smile. Then at 6 p.m., phone calls made to 911 from Harold. Tony had fallen off a cliff near the peak around 5.15 p.m., but Harold would later claim it took him 45 minutes to get to Tony, assess her condition, and then find cell service. Due to the remote location of the accident, it took park rangers and emergency medical staff two hours to get to Tony, and upon their arrival, they declared that Tony was deceased. Harold, it seemed, was the definition of unlucky in love. He had now lost two wives in tragic accidents, but this death would raise more than a few red flags with investigators and bring them to take a closer look at his first wife's death as well. So for the investigation, this was never going to be a whodunit case. Harold never blamed another person and never stated there was another single person around them. They had, in fact, left the established trail and ate lunch at this extremely remote location of the mountain. And then Harold decided to do a photo op with Tony, who he said slipped on a rock before she fell roughly 140 feet to her death. And there's actually going to be multiple stories that he tells, but this is the one that I think he tells the most is this photo op story. So with the complete absence of anyone else to look at, investigators had to determine what actually happened and had to do it with the only witness, or sorry, with only one witness who was the supposedly grieving husband. But thankfully, investigators did not have to rely solely on Harold's story. It would be his statement and actions taken before and after the accident that painted a picture of Harold's evil plan. Harold's statement was that Tony and him had originally planned to hike the paved, less elevated Bear Lake Trail. And this would have made more sense because as we mentioned before, Tony's knees were not in good shape. In fact, she had undergone three knee surgeries and they were bad enough that she had given up skiing. He claimed when they made the choice to hike the Deer Mountain Trail, it would be because there would be less people on it. Now the reason there's going to be less people on it is because this is not the I believe it was a half mile paved trail. This is going to be a three mile rough trail that has about 12,000, or sorry, 1,200 feet in elevation change. So basically, instead of being a nice leisurely stroll uh, to some probably some predetermined outlooks on this, this nice paved trail, they're going on this rather rigor, rigorous hike that a lot of the times if you've ever hiked any of these types of trails they'll have markers indicating how difficult the trail is and with the first trail that they supposedly decided they were going to hike being what would be considered an easy trail and i think it was even handicap accessible to this trail oftentimes these will be marked as advanced trails or difficult trails and, and and for advanced hikers. When questioned about this choice, Harold said he wasn't that familiar with the park, having only driven to the park once to scout out hikes for the trip, but investigators would later find cell phone evidence that showed Harold make eight or nine trips to the park in the six weeks before the hike. His feigned ignorance continued by claiming he knew little of the area where the accident occurred, but 
While on the phone with dispatch and describing the cliff that Tony fell from, Harold would reference a white sheet on a cliff near the fall location, but rangers would note that that sheet had been removed a week before the accident. But most damning of all was a well-notated map in Harold's vehicle that had an X on it right where the fall occurred. For someone who knew nothing about the area, the mountain, the trail, or the spot where his wife fell, he had done a lot of scouting and homework. When the autopsy was completed, certain aspects of Harold's 911 call came into question. Dispatchers told Harold to attempt CPR on Tony, and he claimed he was doing CPR, but Tony's body had no telltale signs of correct CPR, which is broken ribs, contusions, etc., and Tony's lipstick wasn't even smeared from any attempts to do mouth-to-mouth. Now, I'll take an aside here, just... I've done CPR on several occasions on people, and it's not like you see on TV and the movies. And I say that a lot on this podcast. It's not like you see in TV and the movies, but that's one of the reasons I do this podcast is because a lot of the information people get about true crime or anything along those lines is based off what they see on in TVs and movies. And I'm here, one of the reasons I started the podcast is to educate people on crime scene investigation, true crime, police investigations, all this kind of stuff. And I can tell you that when you're doing CPR for real and any nurse, paramedic, police officer, firefighter, anything like that will tell you the same thing. When you're doing CPR correctly, you're you're pumping that person's heart. That's what you're trying to do is basically contract and restrict chambers of the heart for that person which is the pumping action that sends oxygenated blood out into the body that's what's keeping them alive and cpr unlike in the movies it's not going to bring somebody back to life per se what you're doing is you're extending the potential for that person to live if doctors or paramedics or or whoever is able to resuscitate that person uh, via a defibrillator or medication or a combination of it so all cpr is designed to do is to keep that oxygenated blood running through the system but in order to oxygenate oxygenate the blood the lungs need to get fresh oxygen which is why there's rescue breathing not only in this case do we not have him providing the rescue breaths that would have been required to get the oxygen into the system when you're doing cpr you have to push so hard that you are actually going to be breaking ribs that because that's how you compress the chest deep enough to actually basically squish the heart of the, I guess it's the layman's way of saying it that and when they squish the heart you force the blood that's in the heart out and through the system so you're just replicating what the heart normally does but the heart is stopped so for the autopsy to find that no signs of CPR are done no signs of rescue breathing are done even though Harold's telling dispatch that he's doing CPR on his wife. Again, it's not that alone is not a smoking gun in this case of just because he claimed he did CPR, but he didn't. There's a lot of people that cannot touch a loved one that is potentially deceased or in an emergency situation. They just, they can't. It was just the fact that he made a good show of it on the 911 tape, like he's this superhero husband trying to save his wife and i think we saw this before too on the amy mullis case where you've got a husband that in that case murdered his wife trying to do cpr via dispatcher's instructions and 
he's more focused on apparently if you hear it or not in that 911 tape calling her names and whatnot than he is about actually saving her life and and neither of these guys that in that case or this one want harold does not want tony to survive because we're going to find out that's not part of his plan so of course he's not going to try to do anything that could potentially keep her alive and and again that's going to be a theme that comes back when we in part two when we cover the the his first wife's death and then it also came into the case in um, australia that we covered with the divers where the husband there didn't want to be over there while his wife was having cpr done and didn't want to be involved in potentially her life-saving attempts because in all of these cases the husband is the killer the last thing you want to do is give that person a chance to survive and point the finger at you as to what you did again just just some things from the 911 call and there's going to be some more coming up here but just want to take a break because that was an important part to cover in there about this the cpr and what we're seeing with these husband killers of wives or uh, where they're supposed to be doing CPR or they refuse to do CPR, whatever it may be. It's just kind of a common theme with these these wife killers. Four minutes into the 911 call, Harold tells dispatchers he needs to hang up because his phone battery is dying. But a forensic examination of his phone showed that after he hung up with 911, Harold made 22 more calls and sent or received 98 text messages. And many of these calls and text messages were to a friend to arrange a ride from the park. Finally, Harold's version of why Tony was on the cliff in the first place changed at least four times. First, he said that Tony was struggling to keep up on the hike, and when he turned around, she was gone. Then he said he got a text message and was reading it, and then realized Tony must have fallen. Then he both said, then he said, both that he was taking a photo of her and she fell, and then the story became that she was taking a photo of him and she fell. And finally, he said he was checking Tony's work phone for work-related calls, and she fell, and he didn't see it. But this last story was deemed to be a total fabrication because Tony's work phone was at the office on the day of the fall. While all of this is pretty good evidence for a murder, investigators still needed a motive. What Was there another woman in his life? Was Tony threatening to leave him and take their daughter? Investigators took a look at the couple's finances, and that's where they found it, the life insurance policies. Harold had taken out several large life insurance policies on Tony, totaling roughly $4.5 million. This was more than enough motive for someone to kill, especially someone investigators would find had no discernible income and had cashed in on life insurance before. Despite claiming he was a successful fundraiser, Harold was found to have reported only three years of income between 1993 and 2012. Those years were 1993, 1999, and 2000. These years coincided with the years he was courting his first and second wives, and I personally think that means he just wanted to produce some paychecks to prove he was who he said he was before he could actually stop working and then living off his wife's salaries and eventually their life insurance payouts and the life insurance payouts didn't stop with just his previous wife and tony there's about to be a third person in his web but luckily this one would escape so before we get into the third potential victim here we'll cover stuff we talked about the cpr we follow that up with 
we have the 911 call or him telling the dispatchers on that 911 call that he has to go because his battery is dying. But then when they do the forensic examination, they find he made 22 more calls and sent to receive 98 text messages. I've had the the dying battery in the middle of nowhere when I've been in national parks or remote areas before. And that battery dies pretty quick because the, the phone is constantly searching for a signal. And unless you shut it off and then power it up again when you want to make your next call or text message, that battery, you know, if you're even down to 20 or 30%, is going to be drained rather quickly. So his battery clearly wasn't as low as he claimed it was because making 22 more calls in a remote area and sending or receiving 98 text messages is going to sap a lot of battery from that phone. And it, it just go to show that you know, Harold cannot tell the truth, even given the chance. He could have just told 911 dispatch that you know, he needed to call her family or something. You know, a nonsensical statement at that point, sure, but it wasn't going to be a lie then. He just didn't want to be stay on the phone 911. He didn't want to do the CPR. He didn't want to give stuff to the dispatchers at that point. And then we get to the changing stories. And this is something I think I've talked about before, but if I haven't, it's a good time to either bring it up or to readdress it. When I went through kind of a, the statement analysis training, and part of that was uh, figuring out whether somebody's telling the truth or not, there's, there's a very easy barometer for if somebody's telling the truth or telling a lie, and that is people who tell the truth will just tell you the truth and people who lie will try to convince you of the truth and you combine that with the fact the other idea that people who tell the truth will tell the same story every time and people who lie will get details mixed up or will tell different stories and that's both statements come back to the fact that we're wired in our brains when it comes to memory and and recalling from memory we're able to visualize something store it away as data in our brain and when we go to recall that data doing so and then telling the truth about that data is very easy to do and it will be the same every time and you don't feel the need to convince somebody because you've already convinced yourself because you know it to be true so all you have to do is just recall that memory whereas somebody who's lying they've got to access a different part of their brain that is the creative portion of their brain and that creative portion of the brain is not built in memory and so it doesn't operate the same way and not to get too nerdy here but it's kind of like if you're on a bad internet connection and your phone's already downloaded a podcast it can play that podcast with no issue because it's going to a part of your phone that has the podcast itself stored on it. Whereas if you're trying to listen to the podcast streaming via a, a, the cloud, it's got a different part it's got to access to and it's got more stuff that's got to process through from the cloud to your phone and, and at the same time. So it's the same way with our brains. It's a, a something that actually happened to you is downloaded and stored in your memory whereas if you're making something up or you're trying to tell a lie or you're trying to 
you know, come up with, with different things. It's a totally different process. It takes longer. It's not as smooth. And oftentimes you'll end up telling different stories. And a lot of times it's different stories to different people because you, it's what you think they want to hear. And so you'll tell the police one thing and then you'll tell that person's loved ones another thing. And then you tell your friends a third thing because you want to paint yourself in the best light depending on who you're telling the story to. But eventually all those people are going to get together and say, well, that's not what he told me or that's not what she told me. So again, he's got all these different stories. And sometimes too, it says somebody tells a story after they get done, they think about it and go, well, that didn't make a lot of sense. All right, let me change that. And then they'll change their statement just a little bit, but enough that now it makes more sense to them. But then somebody will bring up something and says, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would she be doing that? Oh, okay. No, I, I remembered it wrong. This is, you know, and, and that's what's going on with him is he's got these four or five different scenarios as to how she actually fell. And then we've got these life insurance policies and we've got the discovery that he doesn't actually have any income. So he does, he's not the president of this fundraiser for nonprofits. In fact, he doesn't have a job at all. And he would often go on these quote unquote business trips to, to raise money. And in reality, he was just taking a trip somewhere by himself. Now, a lot of people thought he was potentially having affairs or traveling to other cities to hook up with women during this time period. And, and none of that was ever validated or, or confirmed, but it just, he lived this fake life of being this big wig and telling he had all these stories about all these companies and fundraisers and all that kind of stuff and none of it was true almost almost everything in his life was a lie and in order to fund that though he needed to have money and he got a large insurance payout with his first wife and now he's looking to cash in, in on an even bigger payout with his next wife and then we'll get into the the, the payout on the uh, the attempt at a third payout here. So Grace Rochelle was a sister-in-law of his first wife and he had stayed in touch or they had stayed in touch over the years. He played the grieving widow role well and had earned a shoulder to cry on with Grace. Harold was able to keep Grace close over the years, spending holidays with his deceased wife's families and going on vacations with them. This is not all that out of the norm and had circumstances been different, no one would have looked too close. And just because I was confused. So Grace Rochelle is married to his first wife's brother. So she's, I don't think they can call them outlaws, but she's yeah, married to his former brother-in-law and that's how they know each other. And so even after his first wife dies, he's staying close to her brother and, and also to her brother's wife, who is this Grace, Rochelle. But after finding out Harold had lost two wives, Grace took a closer look at Harold's role in her life in the years after her sister-in-law's death. While she was still married, Harold would offer to take Grace, her husband, and her kids out boating. When he was driving, he would make erratic movements and drive in such a way that people almost flew off the boat, and Grace said he had an evil look on his face. Another time, when they were headed up to the mountains to spread his deceased wife's ashes, he purposely drove close to the end of the cliffs that had no protective railings and would just laugh. Now, many people believe he took a romantic interest in Grace at some point. And while she was going through a div the divorce from his deceased wife's brother, 
He even convinced Grace to take out insurance policy, a life insurance policy to provide benefits for her children in case something happened to her. She agreed to do so in 2010 and later felt strange about it and canceled the policy and took out her own policy. But after Tony's death, the FBI told her that Harold had forged her signature to keep the original policy in place. He had paid the premiums on it and raised it to $400,000 and made himself the sole beneficiary of this now secret life insurance policy. To recap, while married to Tony, he was the beneficiary of another woman's life insurance to the tune of $400,000. And this was unknown to that woman. However, had there not been a thorough investigation into Tony's death, it's believed Harold would have tried to pursue a romantic relationship with Grace, and that at some point down the road, she would have been victim number three. So he's laying the groundwork, and it was very difficult to find this timeline because his first wife dies in 1995, so whatever relationship he had with that family i mean that continued from 1995 all the way through his new wife and obviously tony must have been okay with this because it was 2010 that he was still hanging out with this family and then he's able to convince this woman to get a life insurance policy in 2010 and that's where people believe that he was already laying that groundwork because there's going to actually be another attempt on tony's life in i think 2011 and then she dies in 2012, and he's continuing to take an interest in Grace and her family. Like he takes him out boating in in 2010 and 2011, and I think 20, the summer of 2012. And and Grace afterwards thought back to it and said, now that she's single, she could see a moment after Tony's death where he would have offered to take her out on the boat. And then would have found a way to have an accident on the boat where she doesn't come back. And now that she knows about this life insurance policy, he would have been able to cash in on her death. Or there's a chance that he would have tried to be involved in her life and then increase that $400,000 life insurance policy as they're either romantically involved or married or anything like that to have another payday built in once he gets enough life insurance policies he's gonna at some point try to cash that in as well so so the circumstances around tony's death are not looking good for harold but investigators are about to take a closer look at the death of his first wife and what they find is going to prove that harold isn't just a liar he's a cold calculated male black widow the next episode will dive into the new investigation into harold's first wife's death and how those findings help bring about charges in Tony's death. We'll also cover the trial, the verdict, the sentence, the many appeals, and the outcome of the shocking case. As I said, this was originally going to be a one-part episode, but we haven't even gotten to the first, the investigation of the first wife's death or the trial or anything like that. So I figured this is where I'd rather do two roughly 45-minute episodes than try to push it all into an hour and a half episode or cut out a half hour of content because there is a lot to to look at and there's a lot of of story with each of these uh, murders of his wives and everything else that's going on in his life around that so we'll get to the rest of it tomorrow so thank you for listening stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at productions at gmail.com you can also find me at productions on facebook and support me via patreon at Productions. So that's it for today. Thanks everyone for listening. Have a great day. Talk to you later. Goodbye.